Rules to Reality is a podcast that highlights how regulation shapes or fails to shape our daily lives. I'm speaking to you from Wurundjeri country and would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people listening today. I would also like to acknowledge the ongoing role that colonisation and racist regulation has had on First Nations, but also First Nations resilience and survival in continuing to connect and practice the oldest living culture in the world. Hello everyone, today is another repeated episode of the uh, From Rules to Reality podcast um, after last week's episode with April and Shauna. If you didn't hear that, I would strongly encourage you to give it a listen. This week, I'm re-sharing an episode from the Honourable Kevin Bell, former Supreme Court Justice in Victoria. I've chosen to share this episode for three reasons. First, because I really, really like Kevin Bell. He's genuinely one of the most kind-hearted individuals I know. Uh, Second, because he speaks so eloquently about the social justice issues that come before courts, including uh, issues that relate to mental health. And that connects to the third reason for for repeating this episode, and that's because it highlights the regulatory challenges that come uh, with human rights protection in mental health systems. And, And that's kind of a live issue right now. Because in the last week, Guardian Australia released a a report on on data that I had to seek under Freedom of Information because the regulator had refused to release it for the last eight years. So this report revealed uh, comparative complaints data um, amongst different mental health services. It makes for a really interesting reading, at least not because the Guardian also highlighted that the Mental Health Complaints Commissioner, the principal regulator here in Victoria, Um, has not issued a single compliance notice despite having 12,000 complaints in the last eight years. I can't tell you how disappointing this is. Complaints-based regulators are meant to be a more accessible form of access to justice. You know, those who come before Kevin Bell's courts are rare, Um, you know, and they might be supported by uh, lawyers, by family, um, by income, or um, by just supremely courageous and persistent individuals, and they are supremely courageous and persistent individuals themselves. But we can't rely on situations like this to ensure people's rights are protected across the system. All components of a system need to work together effectively. Services, courts, and regulators. If you hear Kevin Bell speak, you'll hear um, and understand the positive role that courts can play. If you want to learn more about the underwhelming role that regulators have played here in Victoria's mental health system, have a read of the Guardian piece. It's in the show notes. I hope you enjoy this episode. As you know, um, this podcast is is around um, regulation and social justice, Um, but the link between those things is not always obvious to to people in the community. I'm wondering, um, why does regulation matter to you and you know, your community or the people you care about? Thank you, Simon. Uh, that's a great question. I, I would like to begin my answer by acknowledging the uh, traditional owners of the, the people on whose lands I sit, uh, and they are the, uh, the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respect uh, to their elders past and present. Uh, I also pay my respect to the elders of the Wurundjeri people where I was born uh, and to their elders uh, past and present. 
uh, and regulation uh, matters to me because uh, it involves the correction uh, or the addressing of social justice, which can only really be done at the state level. Uh, social justice um, as a concept uh, is, a, is used uh, as a way of generally describing outcomes which are unfair or unequal within society. Um, some people have housing, some don't. Um, some people have jobs, some don't. Uh, some people uh, have um, uh, access to culture uh, and some are deprived there of access to culture, their Indigenous culture. Uh, and these are socially unjust outcomes uh, which can't really be corrected, at least not adequately, unless there is government intervention, which we call regulation in one way or the other. Uh, we're using this term really very generally, of course, and we can drill down in a minute. Uh, but but the, the answer I give to the question uh, is that regulation is, is fundamental uh, for, the, uh, for, for the addressing, for the correcting uh, of outcomes, which if society, the economy, the political system uh, were left to its own, uh, those outcomes would uh, not, be, not be addressed, not be corrected, and would probably get worse. Oh my gosh, Kevin, are you saying that the market can't decide our, our morals um, here? Uh, <laughs> no, well, I'm not, I won't well, draw you in. It can, it can, it can. Uh, it, it can uh, the, uh, the current interest by uh, the private sector in uh, climate change uh, is an example of, it, of, it, of uh, the economy embracing a moral dimension. Uh, now, of course, it has an interest in maintaining uh, the planet, uh, resources, um, the means of uh, production and engagement in economic activity towards profit. So that it has a material reason, a utilitarian reason to care about climate change and its impact on the planet. Uh, but this is often expressed by the more enlightened entrepreneurs as a, as a moral imperative. So no, it's not that uh, the market is incapable of embracing uh, the moral dimension. Uh, and uh, we, we know, of course, that a business and human rights is, a, is an important aspect of the human rights framework. Uh, but rather that uh, a government uh, possesses legal power, political power, uh, public legitimacy, and can act on a scale uh, which is beyond any individual or any company. Uh, and so regulation uh, needs law, needs legitimacy, needs democratic backup uh, to be able to uh, impact and to operate and only governments uh, can have that. I think you've made that case probably clearer than, than we have so far in this podcast. So that's, um, yeah, thank you for that. Um, and so we've obviously spoken about uh, regulation generally there or, you know, regulation as it relates to the state generally. Um, I think, you know, obviously your background is, well, you've got quite a, a rich background, but um, much of it's been involved in the judiciary and, and yeah. many people wouldn't necessarily think of the judiciary or the, the courts um, as, a, as a regulator or oversight agency or even exercising some kind of regulatory function. Um, you know, could you explain your understanding of how judicial regulation or oversight um, can or, or even could work? Well, in, in um, the, the law, even internationally, uh, is built upon uh, the concept of separation of powers uh, so that even in... Uh, continental Europe, where the, the division is, uh, is much less um, clear uh, than here, uh, there is separation of powers. Let me talk about a common law uh, country and a federal uh, country uh, like ours. 
so that we wouldn't we wouldn't normally speak of the courts uh, as regulators. We would speak of them uh, as administering a system of justice. Um, but really, uh, the courts are uh, intrinsically connected with the system of regulation because disputes with respect to the application of regulatory mechanisms uh, are judicial in nature and end up being resolved uh, by courts. Um, I mean, a, a, just a really obvious example is the regulation of the legal profession. Uh, the, uh, the Supreme Court, uh, as the admitter uh, of lawyers to legal practice, actually has a continuing uh, role with respect to the regulation of the legal profession. So we're a pure regulator in that respect, but that's seen to be an aspect of the exercise of judicial power. Uh, but um, take, for example, uh, the regulation of, uh, of doctors or nurses or accountants or you know, any of the professions, uh, which is done through VCAT now in partnership usually with professional associations. Uh, the, uh, and as you know, I was a president of VCAT, so I was engaged in this aspect of pure regulation uh, when I was there. But uh, errors of law uh, can be committed and where there is an issue about that, that goes to the Supreme Court and the court resolves the question whether an error of law has been committed with respect to the regulation of say, the medical profession. Mm. Now that's not, that's a, that's a judicial function, uh, but it's a function which necessarily engages the court in important questions of policy uh, about the, how the system's framed and um, what, the, uh, what, what, what the criteria uh, of professional uh, ethical uh, conduct mean and mm. how to be applied. Uh, the um, another really good example is the uh, is the issue of uh, of regulation of uh, of uh, of the way in which health systems are administered vis-a-vis -vis people living uh, with the experience of mental illness. Uh, if uh, uh, the, the we can call, uh, for example. Uh, the, the way the way the system prevents uh, electric shock treatment being administered to people without uh, their consent uh, as an aspect of regulation. The law regulates the relationship between people with lived experience uh, and, uh, and the medical profession by intervening and stopping uh, electric shock treatment being administered if the person has the capacity to refuse. And that's because the relation of power between the doctor and the person with lived experience is so unequal uh, and so liable um, to misuse, uh, usually unintentional, but you know, sometimes regrettably not, uh, that the law must regulate that relationship. Uh, and the, the, the tribunal is the, the main regulator purely, you know, properly so-called, uh, because it's able to make decisions, yes or no. Uh, but areas of law disputes arise and they come to the Supreme Court uh, and, and we, we call that a judicial controversy, uh, an aspect of the system of justice. But the court is necessarily engaged with the way in which the system of regulation operates on the ground. Uh, and we have an important um, role to play, particularly given the, the Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities, uh, which happily bring human rights into the frame of reference. So Simon, I'd say that um, in a country like ours, uh, where separation of powers is, uh, is, is a rule of law, uh, we, 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 don't, we have a regulatory function, but our function 
is 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 not typically that it is judicial but that judicial function necessarily engages us uh, with the way in which the system of regulation works yeah i can i can i can see that clearly and then as you talk about the um the further you move up um the hierarchy from somewhere like you know mental health tribunal to um what is often a, an appeal mechanism to to the victorian civil and administrative tribunal and then higher to the supreme court exactly. it seems like the higher you go perhaps the the role of the the tribunal is to regulate the relationship between um you know people with lived experience and and service providers but then the higher courts seem to be exercising a regulatory function more of the way the tribunals um that's correct conduct their decisions. Are, yeah. that's correct we we are uh in in this loose sense uh we we are regulating supervising might be a better word in this context yeah. the manner in which uh the tribunal is exercising its jurisdiction to make sure it confirms to law mm. in this state confirms to law and human rights mm. uh to the extent permitted by the charter which is a you know a wide a wide extent uh, and the um the I, I would want to make the point uh, that the the more the more a court, a judge, uh, is conscious of the interaction between the judicial function on the one hand uh, and the regulatory function performed by the body below mm. uh, on the other, the greater is the contribution by the court um, to, the, to, the, to the just operation of the system. Uh, and when, when the stakes get really high, I mean, take climate change, um, for example, um, the Land and Environment Court in New South Wales is, has, has been very active in, in, uh, in, in exercising its judicial function uh, in a way which is uh, very conscious of the impact of climate change upon New South Wales and indeed the planet. Now, that's an example where the stakes are very high indeed, and you really need strong judges uh, having uh, public legitimacy uh, and therefore serious judicial power to engage with the issues of state, those which really affect uh, people um, or persons uh, in a really fundamental way. Mm. And so I'm uh, an advocate for courts accepting the responsibility which their judicial, judicial function gives them uh, to think deeply about uh, matters uh, involving social justice and, and the community more generally, and to understanding the connection between the individual case uh, and uh, and the broader implications of the outcome. By no means am I saying that the courts need, you know, should be going on a frolic of their own or, you know, inventing laws or uh, using cases as an, as an opportunity to, to achieve personal outcomes that the judge may be interested in. But the, the fact is it's, it's often impossible and not even desirable for individual cases to be disconnected from their broader context. Mm. Uh, otherwise, the uh, the court is not performing its its function properly. Certainly not optimally. Yeah, and I imagine it's a um, a very narrow corridor of you don't want to overstep or understep in terms of you need to understand the context in which the courts make that decision, but do. you don't want to become public policy decision makers um, or um, do so in an unauthorized way and, and politicize your your own role. Correct. Correct. The yeah. courts. The courts. Uh, have not got the uh, are not qualified, uh, nor have the uh, the the recognised function of being able to step into some areas, and they should keep out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I accept the premise of uh, of the comment that you just made. Yeah. Um, 
and I, we'll, we'll talk a bit about it later about um, how I think certainly um, my observation um, reading your work in Patrick's case and, and a Supreme Court ca ECT case that, that you presided over you understood that context really well and I, I felt like certainly within the mental health community um, mm -hmm. people felt like you gave voice to, to their concerns um, yes. but well, I'm, glad, I'm glad to hear that because they're an excluded community mm. they're, they're a community whose voice is not well heard uh, and this 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 is a pity um, the um, the ways of being doing and thinking of people with lived experience are as valid uh, as other sections of the community uh, humankind is diverse and all should be celebrated uh, um, for who they are what they can do um, and what they know and so I, I um, have tried in my working life as a judge to appreciate that, uh, which hasn't always been easy because it's um, as, a, as a voice which is soft or ignored, uh, it, it's not always uh, easy to access um, and, and to understand the issues from the point of view of the individual who may have lived with that experience. And so I'm very pleased to hear you say that uh, to, to some extent at least uh, uh, people have felt that I've understood uh, their uh, their dimension. I, feel, I certainly feel comfortable saying that from the people I've spoken to um, and, and I think one of the reasons why um, um, people um, would imagine that you've arrived at that place or that you've, you've um, understood that is because in you know, within the context, within the judicial kind of oversight or regulatory functions, direct or indirect, that you spoke about, and so not overstepping those marks, it, it seems like you take a um, what you might call a human rights-based approach to um, to judicial regulation or oversight. Um, I'm wondering, does that um, firstly, I mean, does is, does that term um, resonate with you, and what what does that mean to you? Um, and could sure. you explain a bit to the sure. Sure. Look, a human rights-based approach is, is really fundamental uh, in those circumstances where it's called for. Uh, and I think we should define a human rights-based approach. Um, and it's, a, it's an approach that uh, human rights um, practitioners uh, at the international level uh, adopted really in the context of, uh, of, of development so that um, new states, um, uh, new states um, in uh, in the less developed world uh, need help in order to grow systems, feed their population, improve their water resources, and so on. Uh, and uh, bigger states would uh, provide um, you know substantial amounts of income and program expertise in order to bring that about. But there's a relation of inequality there. You can see straight away, and so you've got you, you need a, a normative system to regulate that unequal relationship between the donor and the receiver. Uh, and the human rights-based approach provided that that mechanism of normative regulation, um, and it involved it, it's explained in a number of ways. But the way that I would explain it is: firstly, there must be participation by the receiver uh, and not even the receiver by the population concerned so that it's uh, there's a relationship of recognition and respect uh, which is inherent in this word participation um, there must be a, a linkage uh, between the program and, and and human rights so that the uh, the the program 
is respectful not just of the people personally, as it were, but of their rights status. So these are not welfare receivers. These are pe people that have rights uh, and a, and a right-based stake uh, in the program. Uh, Non-discrimination uh, and equality are absolutely fundamental for, for, for obvious reasons. Um, empowerment uh, in order to, over time, uh, improve the position of the powerless, give voice to people whose voice is not heard or ignored. Um, and then transparency, which involves issues of accountability and, uh, and, um, uh, and, and, and planning uh, over time uh, and, and participation in that process. So that, that generally is what a human rights-based approach means. Now in the, and this has powerful implications for the Uruk uh, Justice Commission of which I'm a member, uh, because we, we are uh, engaged in the process of, um, of receiving and hearing truth, uh, of, uh, of, of emancipation and empowerment and the transformation. Uh, and so you can see immediately that there needs to be a normative framework within which that exercise is to be conducted and human rights provide that framework and the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People come in critically there. But your question was, is really directed at my function as a, as a judge. Uh, and the, the answer I give to you is that, yes, I am very conscious indeed uh, of the human rights-based approach uh, in relation to the exercise of the judicial function. I could give you manifest examples, um, manifold examples of that, but um, let me talk about the Matsu Katagu case just as, as, just as one single uh, example. So the Matsu Katagu mother and daughter um, were, uh, unfortunately, their house burnt down uh, and they were rendered homeless. Uh, the local council uh, wanted them to demolish the remnants of the house because it was unsafe. Uh, they did not have the means to do so, and nor did they have a place from which to engage with the council because they were living out of their car and, uh, and in other um, accommodation. They were, they were prosecuted for not uh, doing what council ordered them to do, and they um, didn't attend the hearings because their life was in chaos. Um, the, uh, the mother uh, was a member of the, uh, of the Greek community, and so she had um, no experience with our legal system uh, and, and good but not perfect English language skills and certainly no legal experience. And the daughter had a learning disability, uh, which is a, a disorder of the mind, uh, uh, which is quite, um, it, which, which meant that she was not fully functioning in the adult sense. Uh, she's a very, you know, highly functioning individual. Um, and, and, and an interesting person, but there's no way that she could involve, engage herself in a complex legal proceeding. And so they, um, they ended up in the county court um, at, the, at the hard end of, uh, of, of an appeal, which was dismissed uh, because they did not attend. Uh, the winter letter went astray uh, and uh, their, their attempt to have that reinstated was uh, rejected. So they came to my court and the Supreme Court in order to have that um, refusal of their application uh, to have the case reinstated, uh, set aside. Now, it became pretty clear from them standing before me uh, that these two unrepresented um, women 
we're in no position to engage properly uh, in the legal process without considerable intervention by me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's because their human rights are required um, uh, their participation uh, linked, to, linked to their rights as self-represented litigants, uh, which founded in non-discrimination and equality. They needed to be empowered in order for equality to be, uh, to be evened up. Mm. They needed to be a transparent process. So it's possible for me to, to explain to you by reference to the human rights-based approach how I, how I went about doing what I did, mm. uh, which was to, um, by contrast with what happened in the county court, uh, to uh, uh, invite them to explain, to listen carefully to what they were saying, to appreciate that I had somebody for whom English was a second language in the case of the mother before me, uh, and to appreciate that I had someone who had a learning disability and had no capacity to engage in the process uh, before me, um, and, to, um, and, and, and to conduct the, the hearing in a way which had regard uh, to their, their particular position vis-a-vis incidentally the represented council um, who, had, um, who had a senior uh, barrister there representing them. So that, that's, that's human rights um, writ large in the judicial process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that case has been endorsed by the Court of Appeal. Uh, there's a very interesting uh, video. Um, I didn't have anything to do with the production of this, but the Victorian Bar did a video uh, on this case. Uh, and, uh, and I think it's a good example, Simon, of, uh, mm. of the way in which human rights can interact in the judicial process. Yeah, and um, we'll, we'll put a link to that in the, um, mm. in the show notes for sure. Um, yeah. Do you think, um, do you think that it, if we didn't have a, do you think you'd be able, you would arrive at that place if you didn't have a, um, a human rights would it be much harder to arrive at that place without a human rights framework? Much harder. The, the principles, um, it's interesting to compare Thomas Sevick, which is a case of mine in which I address similar principles pre-charter, uh, and Matt's a Catadu post-charter, similar context. And I think the charter uh, enables the court uh, to uh, function in a way which is much more faithful uh, to the, the human rights of individuals in powerless positions um, and that's because there's legislative uh, endorsement uh, of, uh, of, of that approach, of those norms and rules. Mm. Um, people are seen uh, by human rights to be rights bearers, mm. uh, and this implies um, uh, a, uh, a, a capacity to claim on their part and the obligation to address on the other so you've got claim meeting, uh, meeting um, adjudication. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, I think, as a concept, is, is a stronger foundation under the Charter than, than under the common law. But the common law is really quite powerful too. Don't, mm-hmm. don't, don't be mistaken. Mm-hmm. The, problem, the problem really is that uh, there is um, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the appreciation among um, among courts and tribunals uh, of these obligations is growing. And I think it's much stronger now than it was uh, years ago, but it needs to grow even stronger uh, because the, uh, the, the, the relationship between a person who's unrepresented uh, and a court or a judge and the opposition who's usually represented by a lawyer is a very insecure and precarious one. 
uh, and courts and tribunals uh, need to appreciate that and to take appropriate steps in order to ensure effective participation uh, by, by them. It's interesting that you say that, uh, Kevin, um, uh, because you're, ex you're explaining there in a way um, in the earlier questions about the role that um, courts can play in regulating the relationships um, a human rights based approach can um, inform the regulation of a relationship between like a service provider and a person with lived experience. But the way you explained it there is that the charter itself is kind of regulating to some degree or supporting Very much so. uh, yeah, Very so much so. how judicial yeah. officers themselves do their yeah, proceedings. The, the par par Parliament has made the choice to, uh, to uh, make, make, make courts and tribunals charter bound uh, to the extent that they have, have obligations under the um, under that part of the charter, which specifies the rights, mm -hmm. uh, and so and so they should Parliament should do should have done that, uh, and and therefore the the charter does regulate uh, against human rights norms uh, the way in which courts operate. Now, it, it, these norms are like laws. Um, the um, equality, uh, the right to life, the right to be free of, uh, of, um, of, of forced medical treatment, uh, the right to a fair hearing, um, the, uh, the right to have uh, decisions made with respect to children that are in their best interests, uh, the right when in custody uh, uh, or detention to uh, to uh, to be treated in a manner that that is uh, dignified and, and accords to standards of universal dignity. So the courts uh, and the tribunals uh, operate in a way which impacts upon the, those and many other rights. Uh, and so the, um, the, the, the it's right that Parliament regulates uh, the courts in that way, but it does so in a way that respects the independence of courts and tribunals. Uh, and it, it's not to be the charter as a uh, as a, an act which contains laws which we call human rights is no different to any other act which contains laws which we call laws or the common law uh, which contains laws which we call laws it's uh, it it regulates the courts towards particular outcomes but it does so in a way which uh, respects the judicial independence of the court in indeed the uh, the uh, citizens have access uh, to independent uh, courts and tribunals uh, for the uh, judicial determination of uh, of legal disputes as a matter of human rights. So, the human rights as a system requires judicial independence, uh, and and therefore one can see how the charter fits naturally into uh, the judicial framework when it comes to um, courts like the Supreme Court or the County Court or the Magistrates Court, or for that matter, the tribunals. Well, I, I know that you've got um, plenty of experience in this and, and um, I'm narrowing your um, experience far too too much by focusing on two cases that I know um, yes. you've presided over. So um, yeah, I know that both of these cases had, you know, big implications for, for practice in mental health. Um, one was um, what we come to know as Patrick's case. And yes. um, another one was um, PBU and NJE. And um, yes. I was wondering if you could tell us about those cases and, um, you know, what they feel, what you feel they can reveal about um, the role that courts can play to influence human rights in Victoria. 
Well, I would celebrate uh, Patrick and uh, uh, PBU and NJE as individuals first. Um, you know, Patrick was a real fighter, <laughs> a really interesting guy. I agree. Uh, yeah. PBU and um, NJE, you know, also uh, very, very interesting people. I only met um, in court the woman, um, the man uh, I did not meet in court. When I say meet, of course, I don't mean that in the literal sense, but, but the woman was present in court, the man was not. Um, and I did not meet Patrick, but he's, um, he's, uh, uh, his personality <laughs> was very strongly present uh, in all of the evidence in the court. So Patrick was, um, was a guy who had a schizophrenia, if I'm not uh, mistaken, uh, and he had a home uh, which was within travelling distance of the uh, psychiatric hospital where he was. Uh, he was a bit of an escape artist um, and was able to uh, leave the secure facility uh, and he would go home. Uh, there he, he would get unwell uh, and have to be brought back. And so uh, there were health issues and management issues involved, certainly. Um, but the uh, way in which the hospital chose to dealt with it was rather curious. They appointed his brother, um, who Patrick knew would sell the house, and they did too, as his guardian. Um, and uh, he thought that was outrageous and that human rights had not been taken into account, in particular his human right uh, to be free of arbitrary interference with his home. There were several others engaged. Uh, and so he appealed to the, uh, no, it was not appeal, it was actually a direct order. So the guardian, the, the uh, VCAT in its guardianship uh, jurisdiction made an order uh, conferring a specific guardianship status on the brother um, or, or guardianship status more generally in kind, which included uh, the capability of selling the home. And so he brought that case to the, uh, to the Supreme Court and it was allocated to me and I heard that case. Now this was uh, in at a certain stage in the evolution of the charter, uh, when it was necessary to engage with really quite fundamental issues um, about uh, the the way in which the charter operated in a case like that. Now, Simon, this is a really good example of how this was a judicial case. It was an error of law case. It wasn't a regulation case as such. It was a case in which we were exercising. I was exercising supervisory jurisdiction with respect to error of law of the, of the decision of the tribunal. Um, but one can see how it's, it's, you know, it's legitimate usually to call that a regulatory exercise. Uh, and I was very conscious in writing that judgment that, that I was seeking to map out in legal terms the way in which the system would operate. Now, it wasn't as if I would have final say about this far from it because the Court of Appeal and ultimately the High Court sat above me in this regard. Uh, and so what I was doing was subject to that supervisory or regulatory exercise, uh, uh, mapping out the way in which the human rights framework worked with respect, with respect to Patrick. Uh, and I think the, the one thing I want to say about how I went about that exercise is that I considered Patrick to be the centre uh, of, um, of, of, the, of the concern of the system. His position as an individual from the point of view of his human rights uh, were, uh, I considered uh, to be absolutely fundamental. And so because the, uh, incidentally, this was possible because the tribunal was charter bound, that I had to determine and did. Um, and therefore the question was how should it, 
administer its jurisdiction uh, in a way which had appropriate um, regard to human rights. And I decided that it did not because it had not understood uh, the importance of the human right to be free of arbitrary interference with home and certain other rights which were, um, which were engaged in that process. Uh, the other thing I needed to do in that case was to um, understand the issues from his point of view. Uh, and so uh, I, I, I always emphasise the, uh, the importance of understanding what is at stake uh, for the individual uh, from, the, um, from the point of view, point of, point of view of the values and interests, interests that are at stake for the individual uh, and to spend time on that, to do it authentically, uh, to do it uh, in, in a way which is not, you know, just um, uh, being efficient or ticking a box, but actually dwell uh, on the circumstances of the individual. And adopting that approach, it was not it was not difficult to come to the conclusion that the tribunal hadn't really understood and properly taken account of the of the human rights that Patrick had. Uh, the other. Um, the other case was PBU and NJE, but perhaps addressing that one, I might I might just pause and and say, is there anything and ask, is there anything else you want to know about Patrick's case? No, I I, um, uh, I appreciate and like I'm sure others who are listening, it's privileged to hear you talk to it. Um, I um, I think even there's there's so much indirect regulatory effect of those decisions. So you know I. I I study at, at Regnet, which is a, um, a school in, at, at ANU, and often we take like really broad definitions to regulation, like um, steering the flow of events. And so, you know, um, absolutely, when, when you take that kind of broader definition, um, the the um, the ripple the ripple effects of, of of decisions like that are are enormous for the public conversations we have about mental health. And yeah. I, I still refer to this. I, I'm tutoring. Um, uh, law for social work students currently and and yeah it's a it, it's a, an example very clearly that that informs social workers practice 10 yeah. years after you made that decision so well that's good to hear uh and and i i, I appreciate uh, the um the the observation uh but uh to be honest i knew at the time uh that that this was um this was a great case uh and i knew it uh, because I, uh, I, I could see that Patrick uh, was a great individual. You know, I really, that's why I called it Patrick's case. Um, I really felt uh, inspired by Patrick's uh, innate desire to fight uh, for his own situation. And we have here a person who, in his own terms, um, is, in, is in, you know, in prison. He's not in prison in any, you know, in the sense in which we understand it, but he considers he's in prison. Uh, he, he wants to go home uh, and then his home's being sold, you know, and you, you would think that uh, someone might just give up and think, well, God, the system's too big for me, but not Patrick. <laughs> uh, and so I felt if Patrick can fight hard enough for his rights, then I owe it to him um, to invest some of my own personal uh, judicial energy in working out what was actually happening here. Uh, and so um, I, I, I'm glad to see that the case has had some positive impact in the field, in the broader, in the broader sense in which you've described. Uh, but I, I really uh, mean it when I say you owe it all to Patrick. Uh, no, I, 
incredible chutzpah um, um, from Patrick to, it's not easy to, and we'll talk, you know, it's not easy to, to get a matter like that to the Supreme Court. And there are just so many enormous barriers facing people. Mm. Um, and so I, I agree, it does speak to um, incredible um, resolve. Um, and, and PBU, I think a similar theme came up in that. I, would you be able to tell us a bit about um, PBU? Yeah, well, you know, the, the, this is where, where this the, just an, another added or, you know, two or three layers of complexity added uh, here. Um, uh, PBU and NJE uh, were a man and a woman, uh, both adults, uh, who were being subjected to uh, electric shock treatment uh, without their consent. Uh, both had had it. Uh, and didn't like the experience and didn't want it anymore. Uh, the law was and is uh, that if you have capacity uh, to, con- to consent, um, to give informed consent indeed, then you cannot be forced to have ECT treatment. It's the one thing that you can't be forced to have. Um, so the issue is whether they had capacity or not, and it was decided by uh, the Mental Health Tribunal and then by VCAT that they did not have capacity. Now, I, again, I was really inspired by their desire um, to fight for their own personal position. Uh, they, they, they fought through the system. Uh, despite, despite the uh, illness from which they were suffering uh, and both accepted that they had illnesses, uh, there was dispute about the, um, uh, about the diagnosis and about the, the severity and its impact and so on. But it was quite clear that they both accepted that, that they had illnesses which were life impeding to various degrees, but they did not accept uh, that they lacked capacity to refuse to have ECT treatment. And so that issue was, uh, was, was brought to me. And this was another, um, another case in which uh, I was required uh, to, to, to listen deeply uh, to what it, what it was that they were saying uh, in order uh, to, uh, to um, address from a judicial point of view what the meaning of the capacity test was uh, in the Mental Health Act. Uh, and uh, I, I, uh, it wasn't, um, there was no question that human rights were engaged in this process, just as there was no question that there, was human right, there were human rights engaged in the process in Patrick's case. So we didn't have, at least I did, have not, I did not have that barrier to jump. That, that barrier wasn't there because the charter was there. Uh, and it would have been very difficult for me, maybe even impossible, um, to engage in the, the same decision-making process were the charter not there. I would have had some uh, capacity to do so because international human rights law is always relevant to some extent in these sorts of matters, but not in the, not in the binding way which, which the charter is. So we must be thankful for the charter in this respect. It opens up a capability uh, for decision makers, um, tribunals and courts uh, to engage with human rights in a way that wasn't there before and not just a capability, but an obligation as a matter of law uh, to, to do so. Now in, in, Pat, in, uh, in PBU and NJE, um, I felt that the, the case really really turned uh, on the human right to equality. Uh, we, we, um, th- those of us who are not uh, living with, uh, with mental health are free to make a decision uh, which might not be in our best interest, which might be even irrational, but which accords to our own value system. 
um, those not wishing to have um, COVID-19 vaccines, um, it might be said are in this kind of category. Mm. Um, but no one would, um, would, uh, would seek to impose an obligation on them uh, to subject themselves to a needle penetrating their body for the purpose of administering that vaccine. Mm. Uh, and yet uh, a higher standard of, uh, of, um, of decision-making seems to be required of people who uh, have lived experience. Mm. Uh, and when you approach this problem from that lens, uh, it, it helps, I think, to discipline the mind in a way which is um, much more human rights consistent. Mm. Uh, and so the human right to equality uh, of treatment uh, not just non-discrimination, but a quality of treatment uh, was a really important uh, analytical tool for me, not just a norm uh, to be applied, but a tool to be understood in analysing the nature of the problem. Uh, and, and a part of doing that was, again, understanding the, uh, what was at stake for the individual, for PBU and NJE in this, uh, in this exercise, uh, and to... Uh, and to do so from the point of view of the values and interests that were at stake um, uh, for, for them. Now, it takes time uh, to, to arrive uh, at this point in a judicial life. Uh, you know, it's not a, um, you don't wake up uh, on the day after your appointment as a judge with, with these, uh, with, with, with this kind of human rights capability. I have taken some time in order to, and some study and some effort in order to arrive at this place. Um, but I think that cases like Patrick's case and PBU and NJE would indicate that it's worth the journey uh, because I think the judicial outcome was much more satisfactory. Mm. Um, and I would hope uh, it has had, uh, you know, some positive effect in that broader regulatory respect to which you earlier referred. Absolutely. And, and I know that uh, I used to be an advocate, um, an independent mental health advocate. And I know it was, you know, we, we spoke a lot about that in our practice there. And I know lawyers, you know, uh, it's um, really clarified lawyers' engagement with the mental health tribunal. But even broader, to speak to that broader kind of impact, um, I'm going through an ethics process at the moment for some research. And the standards for um, people diagnosed with mental health issues or labelled with mental health issues to consent are much greater than um, people not labelled or diagnosed with mental health issues. And I can promise you that PBU and NJE is being referenced in my response to that ethics board. Um, <laughs> Glad to hear. Yeah. Glad, um, Glad yeah. to hear. And I like the way that you've just used that word labelled. I think that's an interesting um, approach. And we, we are... At a certain point along the journey of understanding the relationship, those um, who are in positions of power over uh, people labelled with, uh, with mental illness. Mm -hmm. And I think that word label um, invites you to consider the justice of the situation uh, and, the, and, the, and the truth of it, the epistemology of it. That's who right. knows what and who yeah. has the right to say yeah. Uh, these are these are important questions um, with which we must grasp, uh, and the uh, the reform of mental health legislation, you know, over a period of time, is going to have to take account of these new new ways of knowing and questioning. Um, you might say deconstructing. Yeah. Um, who, who knows what and who has the right to say? 
Uh, so this word label that you just used, I think, is a, is, a, is an interesting one. Oh, absolutely. And and I, I remember um, uh, a friend of mine um, from from Italy um, a couple of years ago saying to me, "Oh, like people live their lives inside of these um, these concepts and labels that are applied to them involuntarily." And, and I remember I remember saying, "Well, it's so interesting, you know, because English is a second language. You've you've framed that, you know, in a really interesting way." Oh, well, said, no, no, she said, yeah. "No, I'm just I'm just quite smart, Simon." Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah, it put me in my place pretty quickly. Um, but that's that's true. You know? um, that's absolutely true. I'll send this this podcast to her. Um, uh, so that's an interesting, but that's a very interesting exchange that you've just had. And she, yeah. is she can I ask you, is she living with experience herself, as, or not? Yeah, yeah. I think I think she yeah. she would identify as that. Not probably not with the rights incursions that you. Um, no, you know, well, like, that's, like a, it, that's yeah. a very interesting conversation you've had with her from a number of dimensions. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. I can see you've unpacked that in your mind. So <laughs> yeah, that's I, right. I've very much enjoyed the way in which you've explained all that. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. There's there's a few power differentials corrected in, in, in within the yes. space of 15 seconds. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm wondering, in regulation theory, we often talk about um, responsive regulation. And, and one of the things I'm not sure if, if you've come across, but they talk about a pyramid of sanctions, kind of like your food pyramid. Um, and the, the idea behind that is, um, you know, I mean, we, we've, we've now realize this is all wrong the food pyramid but you'd have your carbs you know the, the main things at the bottom that you did all of the time and you'd have your treats at the top and they think about the pyramid of sanction as as being similar to that where you've as a regulator you've got like softer forms of engagement at the bottom and so you do that a lot more like persuasion and education as kind of a routine response when you're seeing um, non-compliance with rules but you kind of escalate up that to more serious interventions and sanctions. Um, I guess the the more serious the breach or um, the more resistant that person or service is to following the rules. And I, I, that's, that's how we often approach regulation um, from regulation theory or practice, but it kind of presupposes an ongoing relationship between the, um, between the, the, the regulator and the person they're regulating and um, that you will continue with that issue until it's resolved. I'm not, I'm not sure if that's the same relationship that you would have as a, as a judge that can only deal with the matters that come before you when you make a finite and discrete decision. So, so I guess well, I'm just wondering how you, I mean, well, what I do you think, think of that? The um, normally the, the, uh, the traditional judicial paradigm um, is party A and party B and uh, the, the judge uh, determining uh, the proceeding. Uh, and if the proceeding is dismissed, then that's the end of that. Uh, end of that. And if the proceeding uh, is upheld, then an order is made and there is no continuing relationship between the judge and the, uh, and the, uh, and the parties. And there was no continuing relationship between me and Patrick and PBU and NJE. But there was a very strong continuing relationship between the, the judgment and the ideas discussed in the judgment and the industry. Um, and so that challenges the, uh, the, 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 the traditional paradigm straight away uh, because you've got uh, important ideas, rules, normative standards, um, modes of application and thought ways of understanding 
which are discussed by a judge, which because it's a judge doing it, have uh, power, discourse power uh, within the industry, within the community. Uh, and so even in a case where there's no continuing formal relationship between uh, the judge and the parties, uh, there is a, a, a very important relationship between the judge and the community. Yeah. Um, now, uh, another, another, uh, another way of looking at this is that uh, sentencing courts these days are more and more having supervisory roles with respect to individuals mm -hmm. so that the sentencing process is not seen uh, to be uh, a, uh, an episodic one in, in which there is an episode of sentencing and then that's the end of it, but rather a continuing one uh, in which the, uh, the judge or the court uh, has um, a supervisory role over a longer period of time mm. with the person. Mm. Uh, and in bail cases, uh, a person may receive bail on the condition that they accept treatment from a service agency, mm. which is supervised by the court. So the, uh, the relationship there can be continuous too Mm, mm. Um, and 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 so I, I, I challenge to some degree uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, the 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 hard terms of the paradigm but accepting accepting uh, that courts are not equipped to, um, to in, in all you know in the in the usual case uh, for an ongoing relationship with with parties uh, the, the it must be accepted that other forms of regulation must must be very very important, and one of them is the public form of, of simple persuasion. Mm. And I am um, the co-chair of the National uh, Mental Health Commission uh, strategy for reducing stig stigma and discrimination. Uh, with 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 my distinguished co-chair Tim Heffernan, uh, who's a person who self-identifies as having lived experience. And we are, we are seeking um, uh, to assist the National Mental Health Commission to devise a strategy in order to reduce stigma and discrimination against people with lived experience. Uh, and we're not a court. We, we, are, we are the government who will fund this strategy uh, when it's rolled out uh, is intervening in the community in order to change attitudes. Mm -hmm. Stigma is an attitude which leads to a person being labelled with stereotypical attributes, mm. uh, which lead to discrimination. So we're trying to enter at the point of the stigma and change attitudes, so that people are not viewed in stereotypical terms. Yeah, uh, and and so that's a form of regulation. It's a kind of regulation of community attitudes, and I think yeah. that that's uh, it's. I, I, I use that term with some trepidation because it it, it it tends to conjure up the image of mind control, which it's plainly not. <laughs> Uh, but the point I'm making to you here is that there is an absolutely fundamental role for, for non-hard yeah. forms of regulation. And that's a very absolutely. good example. I agree. Um, if you wanted to, as, as the world community does, uh, change uh, the practice of female genital mutilation uh, in poor communities in Africa, then there's no point adopting uh, a purely hard model. Um, there, the, it's been proscribed and criminalised as an activity in most states in Africa, yet, it, yet it, 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 it is still widespread. And that's because it's culturally embedded. So one must adopt a softer form uh, mm. based on education and encouragement uh, and positive engagement with communities uh, yeah. in order to, to, to actually, actually to achieve the regulatory outcome. 
yeah absolutely yeah um i um we're, we're I've, I've snuck in on that project too um yes i did uh, congratulations <laughs> <laughs> so we can both be regulators and mind controllers together absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah. And, and i think it's um uh, something i've been turning over my mind is that um i think stigma and discrimination themselves do they are regulatory in their nature as well just a negative form of it you know people Again, just to they do yes yeah. they do there it's a system of thought which leads to a behavior uh, that mm -hmm. impacts uh, upon upon choice for people with lived experience yeah that's, uh, that's true it does yeah. it constrains the area of free action within within which people with lived experience may conduct their lives you're quite right it's negative yeah. regulation yeah yeah um but you've uh, in, in this podcast given us um uh, a, a really good account of the positive role that regulation and uh, judicial regulation can play. I'm wondering um, if the listeners um, can go away and do one thing after hearing you today, what would you like them to do? Oh, heavens above, Simon. What, what, would, I, what, what would I like them to do today? Um, I, I, I think... Um, I would, like, I would like people to look at the position of people with lived experience from their point of view. Mm. Uh, I would like them um, to respect uh, the, the, the subjective ways uh, of being, of doing, of knowing, uh, which people with lived experience have, uh, and to, and to reflect, reflect deeply upon that. Uh, from the point of view of the power that they might exercise with respect to them. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Kevin. It's been a privilege. It's been great. Great. Thank you very much. And good luck with your other podcasts. Thank you.